Hello and welcome to Going Viral. I am David Lim. As the availability of SARS-CoV-2 vaccines become imminent, Associate Professor Paul Griffin addresses some common misperceptions and concerns relating to COVID-19 vaccines. He also comments on the lessons learned from the current and disastrous second wave in the Northern Hemisphere. Before we start, I'd like to encourage you to register for the next webcast, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free. You get CPD points and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can listen to these podcasts on the HealthEd website, or you can download the HealthEd app and access many other learning resources as well. I will be speaking with Associate Professor Paul Griffin. Paul, could you tell us about yourself? Yes, hi. Thanks very much for having me. Uh, Paul Griffin's my name. Um, I'm the Director of Infectious Diseases at the MATA Hospital, um, Associate Professor of Medicine at the University of Queensland, and Medical Director and Principal Investigator at Nucleus Network, which is where I'm running a, a few COVID-19 vaccine studies at the moment. Well, thank you for giving us your time this morning, Paul. Now, the end of March, we'll probably see the rollout of a vaccine in Australia, if all goes well. Do you know which vaccine this is likely to be and have you any data from the phase three trials? The, the short answer is we don't know which one or maybe even a couple of the, the vaccines for which we've got arrangements underway at the moment will be the ones that we use. And the simple thing that underpins the, the rollout of these vaccines is we need the data to support their use and we just don't have that right now, although it's getting very close. So there have been some well-publicised agreements with the Australian government and uh, three vaccine manufacturers, which is uh, the AstraZeneca and the Oxford vaccine, the uh, University of Queensland vaccine and their collaboration with CSL, and more recently, the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine as well. And I understand there uh, is an announcement regarding a, a fourth arrangement coming very soon. So, so that puts us in a really good position. And I think it's certainly the right thing to have a, a number of agreements, because as I say, we don't yet have the phase three data to know which of those vaccines will be successful. But at least with one or two of them, the phase three data should be coming through in a matter of weeks. That's exciting. Now, when we do get this data and we get the vaccines, first of all, who will be likely to get the shots first and will it be voluntary or will there be some degree of compulsion? The, the thing to, to realise with the approval of these vaccines is the day they're approved for use based on having the data to support that it's not going to be like we flick a switch and all of a sudden the whole country's immune. There will be very complex logistics to mm. roll this out. And therefore we need to do that in a prioritised way. So I haven't seen a formal plan that describes this yet, but I, what most people are talking about and what I would like to see happen is it's certainly prioritised and given first to those people, I guess at the highest risk of acquiring the infection, but also the highest risk of having um, bad complications or a bad outcome. 
And so what that might look like is uh, frontline healthcare workers, particularly those caring for, for COVID patients, potentially people collecting swabs, uh, ambulance officers and, and other emergency services. And then potentially given the devastation we've seen in the aged care sector, aged care workers and maybe even residents of aged care homes would be high on that list as well. Obviously it's a, it's a delicate balance and a lot of work has to go into prioritising that, but we need to make sure we roll it out in the, the most effective way possible. And obviously the idea is that the whole world gets this vaccine, but going from a prioritised use in, in the early days through to that happening, as I say, will be a very complex undertaking that will take some time. Now, Paul, just correct me if I'm wrong, but is it that the phase three trials are mainly in healthy young individuals and they only have a very small number of older people, sick people and very young people? And yet we're rolling it out to this particularly vulnerable group first. Yeah, so certainly the phase one trials will use a very narrow age range and very strict inclusion exclusion criteria because the phase one is focused on safety. But as we go through the phases, phase two, and then even more in phase three, what we've seen with the majority of these trials is the age range has expanded. And so most of the phase threes are enrolling people in their 80s and even above that. And we also see a, a diverse mix of, uh, of races and ethnicities and even the inclusion of, uh, of vulnerable populations. So as I say, certainly the elderly and some of the later phase trials are even including populations of immunocompromised individuals, as well as, for example, populations of uh, uh, HIV positive patients and, and those sorts of things. So the, the idea is with the, the phase three that it's as real world as, as safely possible. And so with the majority of the phase three trials, there are people in that uh, elderly range and even some people in other vulnerable cohorts. So while it's not I guess, a, a perfect representation of the population we want to vaccinate. It's as close as we're able to do. And so I'm very confident that when these vaccines have generated that data from the phase three trials, that we'll have enough information to, to roll it out to the vast majority of people that we want to. Thank you for clearing that up, Paul. Now, that was one of the misconceptions about the vaccines. Are there other common misperceptions regarding the expected vaccines? Yes, there, there are quite a few. I mean, one of the big ones is that everybody, or there's a, a number of people saying, we've never had a vaccine for a coronavirus, so we won't be able to crack this one. And, you know, that's a, a fundamentally flawed statement on so many levels. We do actually have coronavirus vaccines for some of the animal coronaviruses, and, and they're quite successful. Mm. And we've seen with SARS and MERS that the previous two major coronavirus issues that we've faced, in the case with SARS, that was actually eradicated with good infection control measures. Some of the things we're doing now in terms of hand hygiene and quarantining and uh, rapid case finding, for example. So there was only around 8,000 infections with that virus. It did have a high mortality, so there were around 800 lives lost, but we were able to control that with infection control. There were a number of really promising candidate vaccines that were under development, but given we eradicated it, it obviously wasn't, uh, wasn't, justifiable nor ethically sound to pursue those vaccines in clinical trials when we'd eradicated the virus. And similarly with MERS, there, there were some actually good candidates out there that just hadn't had a chance to go through all the phases of clinical trials, again, mostly because the, the virus is in such low numbers. And then people often say, well, we don't have a, a vaccine for the common cold, but the, the coronavirus is responsible for the common cold. There's actually quite a few. And obviously the implications of getting a cold, the mortality is essentially incalculable. And so if you were to try and justify a few billion dollar investment to develop a vaccine for the common cold, it simply wouldn't be funded. And again, would be 
questionable from an ethical standpoint to, to expose a large number of volunteers to a clinical trial for something that has very little consequence. Mm. So I think to say we've never had a coronavirus vaccine and so we won't have one for this is just not the case. Mm. And I guess the other thing which um, you, you already touched on to a degree is uh, the immunity that's generated from the natural infection seems to be fairly short lived and a little variable. And I have to say we're still getting more and more information about that, but it certainly does seem that at least the uh, types of immune responses we can measure don't necessarily persist I guess, first of all, we don't know how much those measurable ones correlate with actual protection, but we've certainly seen people get reinfected and we now have many well-documented, confirmed examples of reinfection. But I guess that's one of the reasons we have a vaccine is that we can tailor that vaccine and add an adjuvant so we get an immune response that is ideally more effective or a lot more effective even than the immunity we get from natural infection. And so that's certainly the idea with a lot of vaccines and some of the data suggests that's quite likely. It may mean that we need to have boosters and we don't know exactly how far apart they'll be yet, but if they're less than annually, then obviously we're even ahead of what we have already with the flu. So I think that um, that's not necessarily an unexpected finding and one that doesn't necessarily detract from our optimism around the vaccines. Paul, another area of concern are the DNA vaccines in the sense that some people are concerned that the DNA of the um, SARS-CoV-2 might somehow merge with our own DNA. Yeah, again, that, that's a, a myth that just uh, isn't possible. So the, uh, the mRNA and the DNA vaccines use really clever technology so that they produce the, the proteins that we need after that vaccine's given to hopefully generate immunity. But in terms of incorporating into the host genome and altering the host genome, there are lots of ways those vaccines are, are designed very specifically to not do those things. So um, it is a novel technology. And so people are, I guess, understandably a little bit skeptical given it is so new and so novel. But um, the technology is very advanced and obviously those sort of concerns were, were thought of at the outset and so they're designed to make sure those things aren't possible. Now, Paul, let's just say that the vaccine or vaccines are rolled out and collectively their efficacy, if you like, is about 50%, which is what our flu vaccine is. So what will be the practical implications for Australia, for travel, and for the long-term economic activity in Australia and the world? So there's lots of debate about what level of efficacy we need to, to solve this problem. And I think a, a part of that is that we're talking about lots of different endpoints here. So if we wanted to eradicate this virus with one round of vaccine, then, then yes, maybe 90% plus efficacy to achieve herd immunity is, is what we would need. Mm -hmm. But obviously that seems quite unrealistic at this point in time, and it's very likely this first round of vaccines won't have that level of efficacy. But even if it's moderately effective, 50 as you say, or even less, if we rolled out a vaccine that's moderately effective in conjunction with some ongoing mitigation strategies to control the spread of the virus, then that vaccine is going to have an enormous impact. Mm. And so really what it comes down to is the level of uptake of the vaccine. And that's where we'd certainly encourage everyone who's able to, to get the vaccine. But it's going to mean that we are gonna need some strategies in addition to control the spread. Obviously not lockdowns, hopefully like we've had to endure to control it, but simple things perhaps such as ongoing high levels of hand hygiene, social distancing, 
mask wearing for certain indications, and maybe some moderation of how we move about. But if we can do those things, even with a, a moderately effective vaccine, then we're going to go a long way to controlling this virus quite quickly. Speaking of the use of masks, in Victoria, we note that the use of masks is pretty much mandatory. And the numbers there are looking pretty good at the moment. And also in New South Wales, where our numbers are reasonably comparable, uh, we are running around without masks. In fact, fewer and fewer people are using masks. Where do you think we should be standing with regard to the use of masks? Leave it voluntary or mandate it, say, for example, in Greater Sydney? It really comes down to the situation and the epidemiology and the amount of local transmission around at the time. And the big thing with masks is we know they're not, uh, not a magic bullet. So a very useful adjunct to other ongoing mitigation strategies, but they don't replace those really fundamental things we're trying to educate everybody on, particularly hand hygiene and social distancing. So particularly when you're in, a, in an environment where you can't social distance, for example, on an aeroplane, then adding a mask to that is an additional mitigation strategy that further reduces the risk, particularly to others, but also to the, to the mask wearer. We saw with the epidemiology in Victoria with uh, rapidly ascending case numbers and lots of local transmission that really exceeded the capability of the, the contact tracing um, work, that the addition of masks was completely justified and help to tip the balance back in the favour of controlling the virus, which we now have done. I think when we have very little community transmission, and particularly when our contact tracing capabilities are above um, what we're seeing in terms of case numbers, then the use of masks probably becomes less beneficial and therefore probably should become something that's voluntary. But I guess what that means also is if it's voluntary, we need people to know when to use them and to use them when required. Mm. Otherwise, we need to make it mandatory. And again, the situation at its height in Victoria, the case numbers were so high that it made sense to make it mandatory. But I think now that we've got it under control, and that goes for Victoria as well as New South Wales, I'd encourage people to be able to use masks when they feel they need to, make sure people understand what those situations are. And as I say, it's situations where you particularly um, prolonged indoor close contact where you can't socially distance. And I guess also educate people on how to wear them and the fact that they also need to do other strategies such as hand hygiene um, and social distance where they can in addition to wearing the mask. So I guess to sum up, I think it's time to make them voluntary, but I'd certainly want to make sure people know they, they can and should use them when needed. Changing the topic now to rapid testing, if I may, are they becoming a lot more reliable? and will they be more widely used? If so, which one and where will we use them? So there are hundreds, if not thousands of uh, so-called rapid tests coming through. I guess the thing to say is we can't group them all into the same, um, the, the same thing because there are rapid antibody tests, rapid antigen tests, rapid combinations of the two. And even though they're being called rapid, so many different platforms using lots of different technologies with, with highly variable performance. Mm. I think rapid tests are a really useful addition to the current tests that we have. Unfortunately, what often sacrifices when we speed things up or use less invasive samples is the test performance. So, so I think for symptomatic people, we're currently testing at the moment, should still have a test that's has a proven track record validated and utilized in the hands of a reputable pathology provider. Mm -hmm. So I think all of these tests won't replace the current testing that we have, but I think there's certainly a place to add rapid testing 
to try and regain some freedoms that we currently don't have. And again, the examples would be things like travel and major events, for example, where we could at least do a test that may not be perfect, but gives us an answer at that point in time to slightly reduce the risk even further. And what that might look like um, is, for example, people getting on a plane, maybe at either end, um, could have a rapid test, just so we catch the, the small minority of people that might be asymptomatic and didn't get enough symptoms to seek a, a traditional test. But the thing with all tests is we need to make sure that they're, they have evidence to support them and that they're appropriately validated in the setting they're going to be used. So there's a lot of commercial providers encouraging us just to, to buy these tests and use them wherever. But as with any pathology test, it needs to be set up well, operated well, appropriately validated, and the results interpreted in terms of the context of all of those things. So, so they're not a perfect solution, but I think a very useful adjunct to the testing that we have already. Paul, do you have any comments to make on the currently rising second waves in America, the UK and Europe? I think it's really concerning. I mean, we're seeing case numbers rise exponentially. And I guess that tells us quite a few things. I think, first of all, obviously, this virus isn't going to go away anytime soon. And we really need a vaccine to help with some of that. I think it also shows why an eradication strategy is just going to be too challenging because this virus does keep coming and it, and it keeps coming back. Yeah. I think it also highlights different approaches and we've seen obviously every country have a, have a different approach. Our approach in Australia, whilst criticised by some, I think the numbers speak for themselves and it's been highly successful. Mm. It's obviously been a lot to endure for people, particularly in Victoria, that have had to withstand quite significant lockdowns. But I think the results speak for themselves now. So we, we've employed a very strict approach. Um, aggressive suppression is the title that's been used. So we're still not aiming for eradication. And, and that's been very successful. And so now if we wind that back and keep some more basic, uh, less invasive restrictions in place, we should hope to continue to have good control, but that will rely on obviously having international borders essentially locked down, yeah. given the situation around us. But as I say, the situation in most of the rest of the world at the moment is very concerning. And the unfortunate thing with this virus, while a lot of people are saying it's mild and we don't need to be concerned, is that even with a very low mortality rate, which may well be less than 1% in some of these countries, when you have hundreds of thousands or millions of people infected, that still equates to a very large number of deaths. And it also means that a lot of people will be very significantly affected by this and a proportion will have symptoms that persist because we know that this virus can do that as well. So I think the situation elsewhere in the world tells us a few things. It tells us our strategy was a very effective one, but it also tells us that we need to make sure we don't get complacent and assume that this is going to go away because it clearly isn't the case. We have a slightly different story, if we believe them, that uh, the Indians are reporting that the peak has passed somehow. And um, I wonder whether these are numbers uh, we can look at and believe, or is it the fact that they're testing it differently or not testing as much? We know that everywhere in the world has had vastly different rates of testing and even um, countries like the USA had uh, much less access to testing than we've had here in Australia. And, you know, I have to say our testing strategy, our availability of reliable tests, mostly with a relatively quick turnaround has been a huge part of our success in this country. It's, it's difficult to explain differences between different countries and to put it down to one thing. But in, in terms of those numbers in India, 
I would be reasonably confident that a lot of that does come down to uh, a lower availability for testing. And so therefore, significant underreporting of the situation over there at the moment. But again, it's impossible to know what the actual situation is or what the true numbers are. Now, as we're going towards the, uh, if you like, um, the practical end of the podcast, um, do you have any messages for our GP listeners, both for themselves and for our patients? I think some of the main messages would include not getting complacent. We're very fortunate in this country to have excellent control at this point in time. But as we see with the rest of the world, this virus will keep coming back, whether there's seasonal elements and we'll expect it to come back next winter, whether it's relating to relaxing of restrictions, which we're starting to do here in Australia at the moment. Either way, it will keep coming back. So we need people to remain vigilant. Mm. Testing needs to stay at very high levels, even when we think there are no cases around. If we don't keep testing, we'll miss those first few cases mm. and risk re-establishing the infection before we realise that's happening. So not getting complacent, keeping it in the forefront of your mind, keeping yourself safe in terms of using appropriate PPE and hand washing and maintaining high levels of testing so that we don't miss any cases if they do start to come back. That's my main message at the moment. Very sound message, Paul. And I think they will be with us for a very long time, those practical tips. That, that's right. I mean, I would like to think that um, in some ways, one of the benefits of having gone through such a, a terrible thing is that our behaviours might change for the better longer term. We've certainly seen some of these simple infection control measures have an amazing impact on influenza and other respiratory viruses. Obviously, we can't expect to have lockdowns and travel restrictions move forward for the rest of time. But I think things like hand hygiene, social distancing and isolating and getting tested if you're unwell should be how we approach all of these viral infections mm -hmm. moving forward. Have I missed any important points that you'd like to get across to our listeners? I guess the only other thing to say is it's really exciting that we're getting close to having a vaccine available and a lot of talk about that happening even in the first quarter of next year. But I think, you know, all healthcare providers, particularly GPs, will need to have a big part to play mm -hmm. in that vaccine rollout. In terms of education and reassurance, there are a lot of people that are a little wary of these vaccines, partly based on how fast they've been developed mm -hmm. and the fact that they're obviously new. So GPs are going to have a huge part to play in allaying that anxiety, getting the right messages out there and encouraging uptake of this vaccine. So, uh, you know, obviously our, our GP friends out in the community are going to be uh, critical in terms of that process. So, um, you know, I just look forward to being able to be in a position where we can all work collaboratively to make sure the uptake of this vaccine is high and it plays its part in getting us through, through COVID and um, closer to, to where we were before at least. I can already see a very important part for, for you and for people like you, Paul, in the sense that the only thing that will give GPs both the knowledge and the confidence to highly recommend our patients receive the vaccine is that we ourselves are very well informed. And I look forward to the fact that the experts will somehow create a program whereby every GP is brought up to speed with every vaccine and what we need to look out for in terms of adverse reactions. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. And, and certainly that's something that's already being looked at to, to make sure that, uh, you know, people have the, the tools at hand in terms of understanding the, the trial results, the, the pros and cons of all these vaccines, who they're ideally suited for and what to watch out for so that 
we can approach this uh, collectively with all the information we need to make sure that the, the rollout of these vaccines is as successful as possible. I look forward to that too. Paul, I thank you very much for your precious time and for this very, I, I would call it clarifying talk, uh, looking at some of the myths and just uh, looking at the evidence behind it. Uh, I think it's been very valuable. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. You have a great day. Thank you. You too. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast where you can always catch a high quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.